Happy National Sandwich Month. This is Liz, and here's what Popping Collars is baking up for your podcast feed in the month of August 2022. You're used to us serving up the traditional wrap of religion, hiding in pop culture. But this month, we flip all of that around when we talk about our favorite popular representations of church and faith. We've added some garnish to our latest episode of The Canon when our brand new panel of guests draft their favorite movie musicals. Going on 30 comes with an extra slice of cheese this month when Betsy and Greg look back at the melodramatic classic The Prince of Tides. Greg is looking back on his Camino de Santiago journey with special guest Ryan Parker on this month's Sacred Six. The two of them chew on the physically hardest crust of the Camino Trail when they talk about the region of Basque Country and Navarre. Finally, the Popping Collars Book Club is back this month as Ricardo and I grill the latest books we've been reading. Thanks to listening to the PBNJ of Episcopal Podcasts that keeps the chips on the side and the collars popped. Hello, I am Holly McHale Larson, pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Oakland, and you are listening to Popping Colors. Are you ready for a miracle? Welcome to Popping Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of religion and pop culture, quite literally this month, but we'll get into that in a second. I'm Liz Easton. I am your host this episode. I'm the canon to the ordinary in the Diocese of Nebraska, and with me are my co-hosts. I'm going to go first to Ricardo Avila. Liz, hi. Uh, I'm Ricardo Avila. I am uh, coming to you from an echo chamber. Apparently, uh, I am the rector of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Los Gatos, California. Um, I just had a lovely summer trip to Europe. Uh, and crazily enough, I'm doing some catch up on vacation and uh, continuing it and such. I'm actually going to France in September. Oh, ridiculous. Come on, your life. Like, what? I, I sort of feel guilty when I tell parishioners. And they do a little double take. Weren't you just in Belgium? <laughs> this is the classic joke. If you were a Catholic priest, we could make the classic joke. If this is poverty, show me chastity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> Great. Well, maybe next month. But yeah, so I'm looking forward to this. And, uh, and then, you know, life is good. I, I can't complain. Um, yeah. California, baby. All right. Love it. Thanks. Love it. And with me is my other co-host, Greg Knight. What's going on, Greg? Hey, Liz. Let's see. What's going on? I am down here in Palm Beach, Florida, where I am the Associate for Christian Formation at the Church of Bethesda by the Sea. And I just got back from walking a lot. I walked for 37 days and almost 600 miles. Wow. uh, And did two Caminos to Santiago de Compostela. And here's what I can tell you when you get back from these walks that no one tells you, your body still thinks you're walking. So like if I sit for long periods of time, like I get sore because my legs are like, what's going on? And then here's the really weird one at about nine 30 at night, every night, my knees will just start kicking my legs like out like this, like an involuntary reflex 
Like they're just like, we got to start walking again. What's going on, man? You know, <laughs> you creepy. <laughs> Did you get some gnarly blisters? Uh, I got some gnarly blisters, but they calloused pretty quickly. After about a week, like your feet are fine. You could walk on hot coals and you would be wow. totally fine. Yeah. So. Um, and Definitely. finally, my co-host and general convention buddy, Betsy Carmody. Yay, Liz. It's me, Betsy. Um, it's been so long since we've hung out together in Baltimore, Maryland. I am the chaplain here at Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia. And it's summer and it's quiet. And there's occasionally a camp of children on campus playing soccer or doing scholastic endeavors. But it's pretty sleepy around here much like my dog i'm looking at who's sleeping who's only really aroused here in the home when there's work being done on the dorm so right now there's a bit of a stranger things vibe there's air scrubbing (laughs) happening there's some zippy things over doors so i'm just kind of going with it and you know this is what we do in our downtime when as we prep for kids to come back to school awesome well um our episode this month is an episode that I cannot believe we've never done before. And in fact, when I was thinking about it, I thought, surely we've done this before. I had a little bit of deja vu, but I don't do it all the time. Like, I don't don't know. Exactly. So our theme for this episode is depictions of Christianity in pop culture or Christian pop culture. Those are kind of two different things, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Did you know that there's basically a Christian Netflix? I forget what it's called, but if you're into Christian films and television shows, you can subscribe to this service, get all the Christian content that you want. Anything is possible for this episode. We can talk about um, distinctly Christian pop culture left behind. Perhaps we can talk about um, depictions of Christians in pop culture, president Jed Bartlett on the West wing, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know where we're going to go. Um, It seems to me, you mentioned Stranger Things, Betsy, that nowadays in our post-Christian world, I'm aware more often than not about how the church does not exist in pop culture. Mm -hmm. You know, like when I was watching Stranger Things, I thought, is this about hell? Is like, why are there no religious figures (laughs) trying to interpret what on (laughs) earth is going on here? But it's because in so much of our popular imagination, the church doesn't exist anymore. So we're going to explore some of that in our podcast and we're going to turn to the magic bag. I have one thought. Can I share one thought? My thought was why we haven't done this. It makes me think about when we have this publicist, right? That Greg knows who pitches us stuff. And whenever he pitches like overtly Christian or overtly church stuff, we're like, that's not what we do. We look for you know, we look for the the sacred and the secular, right? Like we don't intentionally go after, right? You know, right. Um, we're not just watching Seventh Heaven over here, right? Right? No, Seventh Heaven. I forgot about Seventh uh, about <laughs> Seventh Heaven. But that's so, how I, you because know, I too had a similar response. But I'm like, oh yeah, like we're not going to do the you know. I died and came back documentary movie. And let's talk about what the afterlife looks like. So this is sort of a meta, it's kind of a meta episode for us. Well, we kind of, we kind of flipped it, right? We, we flipped it a little bit. Usually dig around for religion inside of secular pop culture. And now we're like 
flipped it around. Uh, Liz, you can keep talking according to the bag because the bag has decided that it likes what you're doing. So it wants you to keep going. Wow. That's a lot of fresh. So I'm going to talk about one thing primarily, which um, I think we've probably all seen, but I want to give a little shout out to a film that I almost did, but I thought it might be a little bit esoteric. So I'm not going to go into this too much, but this is just a recommendation for folks. And it's a film called Of Gods and Men, which was released in um, 2010. It was sort of like an indie film. And it's about a small Cistercian, so Trappist monastery in the Middle East during a time of great turmoil when the community where they live in is threatened by an Islamic fundamentalist group. And um, it's based on a true story. I want to say it's set in Afghanistan because there are those beautiful mountains. But um, there becomes a a question because Christianity is under threat and um, is the intention is to eradicate Christians from the area. And this is a small group of monks who really care for their little community. So this small group of monks has to discern together, mainly in silence because they're a silent order about whether to flee and save their lives or whether to stay and die. And it's just an incredibly quiet, powerful, beautiful film that you don't need to be a religious person to watch it. But I feel like people have slept on it. And it's a great movie called Of Gods and Men from 2010. Mm. We watched it at a clergy retreat one year. And I want if it wasn't about like martyrdom, I would want to show it to search committees because it's really about discernment. It's about it's really beautiful. Ricardo's raising his hand. What's up? I have seen that movie. That's right. Yeah. Is that the one where like, oh, I guess I shouldn't give it away. But like one of the monks is under his bed hiding and kind of survives yeah. the situation. And yeah. oh, yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah, I think that I think one monk survives. It's a really small community, like maybe eight men. And yeah. I think one of them survives. It's amazing. And it's based on a true story. It's really, really good. Um, but the film that I want to talk about is I think the one that you've all seen before, and that's dead man walking. Mm. When was the last time you watched dead man walking? It is such a dark film that it's not like on my list of, it's not like a comfort movie, but it's such a good film that I do turn to it more often than you would think. But for those of our listeners who have not seen dead man walking is maybe, maybe you're really young. And it was before your time, but it is a 1995 film that was um, directed by Tim Robbins and stars Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn. And it's based on a book by um, a nun named Sister Helen Prejean, who um, is portrayed by um, Susan Sarandon in this film. And the premise of the movie is that she is a nun living in New Orleans Due to some of the ministries that she's involved with, someone invites her to respond to letters from people who are in prison and on death row. And she begins corresponding with an inmate named Matthew Ponsolet. Yeah. Sean Penn plays Matthew Ponsolet, who is convicted for raping and murdering 
to young people and is now on death row. And throughout the film, the tension is in part that he wants a pardon and he wants legal help and she wants to help provide him legal assistance. But also she is able, she's given access to the prison because when you're that close to execution, you're able to select one person to be like your spiritual guide through that process. And that's the role that she takes on as a nun which the chaplain of the prison who is a Catholic priest is not too excited about. Unlike a lot of sort of crime movies, it's, it's never really a question about whether he committed the crime. He maintains his innocence and he confesses to Susan Sarandon's character in a probably the most pivotal and important scene of the film. I killed him. Responsibility for both of their deaths. You sure? The lights dimmed on the tear that night. I kneeled down by my bunk. I paid for them kids. I never done that before. <laughs> there are spaces of sorrow only God can touch. You did a terrible thing, man. A terrible thing. But you have a dignity now. Nobody could take that from you. You are a son of God, Matthew. Nobody ever called me no son of God before. <laughs> Call me son of you know what a lot of times. Never no son of God. I just hope my death can give him parents some relief. I really do. Well, maybe it's the best things you can give to the persons in the dark cross. It's a wish for their peace. Because I never had no, no real love myself. Never loved a woman or anybody else myself much good. But figures I'd have to die to find love. Thank you for loving me. It's just really moving. And in terms of depictions of faith, it's it to me, it feels very honest. Um, she plays a nun who's like a legit nun. And she's not so often, I think, when we see clergy people being represented in media, there is some sort of epic internal struggle about their vocation. And she struggles about the ministry that she has to do in that moment on death row. But there's nothing ambivalent about her vocation as a nun, which I thought was really refreshing and um, just kind of rare in film. And from a ministry perspective, something that I have always appreciated about this film in the times that I've watched it since being a priest is that she's thrown into this incredibly intense experience that she's never had before has really no training for she can only rely on her training from other ministries her past and her um faith but she screws up there's one point where she makes this key pastoral mistake where she's ministering very publicly to the murderer and she does not ever approach the family of the victims and they call her out on it. And there's a really humble apology in that and like a learning. And for me as a priest, I have screwed up so many times in exactly that way where you miss the forest for the trees and you don't see the thing that you could have been doing and should have been doing in some cases, because you're so consumed with the other thing that you're doing. And it, that, that scene has just always been moving to me. No, that movie, I remember being particularly moved by that film. And I really felt like, I mean, I'm sure, you know, Tim Robbins is a director, like he hasn't gone on to kind of do something else that's for me at the same level 
of that. But it's that interplay with Sarandon and Penn that is just so powerful. Yeah, it's a masterpiece of a film, too. Like, Mm -hmm. let alone Faith or Crime or anything else. Like, it's just a beautiful movie. Mm -hmm. So the the image that I remember that always stands out to me, and maybe it's because it's in the trailer, is him on the bed, right, for the lethal injection. And... Uh, he's in like a cruciform Mm -hmm. with his arms out to the side, legs together and down. That always strikes me as an evocative image because like, how is a murderer and a rapist, like a Christ figure, right? I mean, so, so much of sort of death penalty law, uh, capital punishment and stuff is tied up in this idea of like, you know, revenge and justice and to have a, a Christ image in that moment makes it sort of flips it a little bit right in our, in our brains. Like it makes us think of it differently. I just wonder like if you are the victim of a crime or if you have a family member who's a victim of a crime, is that potentially like an image that you'd find uncomfortable? Right. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, and I think like, and even when they do that, I don't know if that's what the lethal injection table actually looks like. Like it has to have been intentional from a filmmaking standpoint, because even his head is turned down to the side, like in the typical crucifix images of Christ. Yeah. And well, I just think one of the things that they do that is interesting in this film and good is that he, there is a reconciliation moment where he takes responsibility for what he does, which is a powerful part of the film. And even where like, he sort of comes to terms with who God is to him and what this sort of final moments of his life will look like, but he can't quite do it. Like he can't be like when he gets all the way to the table, like he, he can't maintain that. Like he keeps screwing up and he keeps being a jerk and a, and a really broken, dark person. And that's real life. You know, you know, there was a time, even when I was growing up that the Catholic church's social justice teaching and pro-life ethic was what they would call a seamless garment. And it absolutely, it was anti-abortion, but it was also anti-war and also Mm anti-capital punishment. Mm -hmm. And in recent years in the United States, at least, abortion has eclipsed every other pro-life issue. And our secular politics in the United States have aligned so much with conservative Catholicism that that consistent ethic of life just isn't the case anymore for so many Catholics. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate because it had a lot of integrity. I remember there was a moment in Mad Men, in like the last season or whatever, they're kind of, there are people protesting on the street for like pay equality and, 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 you know, hiring of everybody and civil rights and all that. And there's a priest walking the picket line yeah. in his full collar and whatever. And I was just kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah. You right. Know, you would have seen that. You would have seen that all the time. I hate to disappoint Liz and Greg, at least, but um, I'm actually not a Pearl Jam or Eddie Vedder fan. Um, In fact, I don't like them, Uh, but maybe I haven't been enlightened. But the soundtrack to Dead Man Walking has this amazing song that Eddie Vedder sings with the guy, Ali Musrat Fatih Khan some you know it's gorgeous it's called the long road 
And it's hard to find. Like I, I can't find it on Spotify except for Eddie Vedder singing it himself. Um, but Ali Khan, the, the, whose name I can't remember, he has this gorgeous voice. He does that. And it's, it's like, it's about dying. It's about like the long road of life. And I have wished for so long how I wish for you today. So mm. if you ever find it, I'll try to send it to you. It's stunning. You can cut that out of the podcast, but beautiful. Oh, no, keep it in. So but the Eddie record Vedder. I saw, I saw Pearl Jam in Chicago in 1994. Lots of stage diving. I was there. I am equally disappointed, Ricardo. <laughs> so there we go. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Sorry. I'm not perfect. Well, you're not perfect, but you are next. Oh. The list, Ricardo, because the bag has chosen you to go next. Craig, I, I sort of want to say, how do we know? Like your hand comes up from off camera. <laughs> Out of nowhere. I mean, just, how we do need to really have the bag on camera. I think that is what is being asked for. I guess faith. It's all faith again. Okay. Um, I'll go next. So I have two. Yes. I know, Betsy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Liz Sneaky did too. I was I like, also wow, was real two. fast with Liz's. And the, oh no, that wasn't the real one we're talking about. All right, Ooh, that's fine. Good idea. So the one I actually don't want to talk about. Yeah, just, the one you don't want to talk about is <laughs> my honorable mention is um, is a movie Priest. Mm-hmm. Uh, the yeah, game. I don't remember the director, the actors, or anything. Uh, but it was a movie, and I think it was from England. Anyway, it came out in the somethings, 1990s. Maybe, Betsy, you can help me with that. I think it was the early 2000s because it was when I was working at the video store, I remember. Oh, okay. So the thing about that movie was it was it was pretty uh, – it was, it was really interesting because here's this closeted gay priest um, living his life, having a partner, but also being a Catholic priest, right? And – the perspective of the film is that you side with him, I think, because he doesn't get to live his full life. And then, you know, spoiler, and then he deals with the the, the, the problems of his parish, et cetera, including a little girl who's getting um, sexually abused by her father or stepfather. Mm. And it's intense. And um, the father or stepfather comes into the confessional and like taunts him about it. You know, he confesses it and taunts him knowing that he can't reveal it. And so all this kind of drama is happening. And there's this sort of weirdly miraculous, like he's praying intensely for help in how to, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, if you've seen this, there's the, the climactic scene is, um, spoiler alert, he's praying intently either for himself or for this girl or something, and a fire erupts in the house and kills the stepfather father. And so you don't know whether that was a direct consequence or not. So I remember that scene. And I remember the scene where everyone finds out he's gay, like he gets outed. And um, he's at church that Sunday giving out communion. And so is like his deacon and no one will come to him. Mm. And everyone's in line to get communion from the deacon, except for that girl. Mm -hmm. I think it's her. And she comes up to him and takes communion. And he just starts crying and crying. But that's not your pick. But that's not your pick. That's not what we're talking about, though. <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. It seems to me what's hard about depicting religion in pop culture, at least in movies and TV shows, is that 
you, you have to be mindful of a secular audience because that's that's kind of the majority of who's out there unless you target it to a Christian audience. And then that that's a whole other can of, for me, worms that, you know, I tend not to like movies that are so over, so blatantly faith-based or religious because they feel, I don't know, smarmy or something. Not smarmy, but you know what I mean. Like you're being pandered to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, yeah, I find them manipulative. I, I yeah, mm. I, I kind of yeah, I get that vibe from. Right, exactly. So it's hard to walk, make that fine balance of like a quality film or TV show that really depicts religion in you know in a in a not even just a positive way, but in, in like a realistic way, and yet still keep a secular audience interested. And then my real pick. Um, I thought of this movie. It stayed with me. I think I saw it when it first came out. I saw it with William. It's called Agora, A-G-O-R-A. It stars Rachel Weisz, W-E-I-S-Z. And she plays a real-life person, uh, Hypatia, who is a philosopher and a mathematician in, like, the 4th century A.D. And she's living in Alexandria, it's based on a true story. And her father is like the main librarian of the library at Alexandria. Oh, oh God. What? I see where this is going. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but she, Rachel Weiss is in this movie. Yeah. Her, so she, she has a following. You know, Agora is the word for like the marketplace, the Agora. Right. And so she would go out there and teach. And she, you know, it doesn't make a huge deal about her being a woman in that time in the film. Uh, it just, she's just remarkable. And she was, you know, Hypatia herself was. But um, three of her uh, kind of process, uh, of her followers are played by Max Minghella, mm-hmm. Rupert Evans, and Oscar Isaac. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of fall in love with her a little bit. The reason I think of this movie with some frequency is that the Christians in the film, and again, remember that it's, um, you know, it's based on a true story. Don't look so good. (laughs) You know, she's smart, wise, reasonable, enlightened. She has these followers. They adore her. Things are going well. And um, the early Christian movement. Now, this is the year 391, I believe, is when the library in Alexandria gets burned down. Can I Google that? By Christians. Yeah. Oh, I just happen to know that. Um, <laughs> actually, you know what? I'm getting my information from a Roger Ebert review from 2010 when the movie came out. So I hope yeah. he's talking about that. Raj. I actually didn't know that Christians are the ones who destroyed the library at Alexandria. You know, they're very, they're like, okay, they're, they're, they're bullying people into believing you have to believe our way or we will destroy this place. And so basically the Christians are the bad guys and they wind up burning the library at Alexandria and basically destroying the pagan ethos there and take over. Why don't you sit down? Where is everybody? Please sit down. I have, I have news for you too. All dignitaries who have yet to embrace the Christian faith are to be baptized in public. The aim is very clear, is to add to our cause all the Christians in the city, decent folk prepared to, to fight for me. 
you speak of peddling faith. But since everything seems to have been decided already, I don't understand why you require my presence here. I am not a member of government. No, you are more than that. You are the person I trust most, and everyone knows it. You cannot be saying what you are saying. Years ago, years ago, you taught us something. If, if two are, are equal to a third, they are all equal to each other. Do you remember? Yes. The three of us, we are all good people, and you, you are as Christian as we are. Sonicius, you don't question what you believe. Because you think, well, is there some truth to this? You know, when they gained power and uh, they were kind of like on the, their star was on the rise, surely there was some, you know, bullying and pushing around of people who wouldn't believe who were pagans. And so this movie, it's, it's interesting. It, it's, it speaks from her perspective and you think she's so awesome. And then these kind of rabid Christians show up and are trying to force her to, you know, recant her beliefs and talk about Jesus as the only way. And they burn this astonishing collection of books that we'll never have again. And uh, there we have it. <laughs> so that's my pick. And I think the thing that Priest and Agora have in common is this sort of, you know, obviously critique of, of organized religion and how it can really destroy people's individuality. Um, I have a Camino story from what you just said. Is this going to be the way things are going forward? Maybe. It might be. Okay. Yes. I'm here for it. Let's do it. Maybe. I, I just think that it's really rare that Christians hold this mirror up to themselves of like, are we doing the right thing? You know, no, it's like, it's like, you know, we're always doing the right thing. It's kind of, it's kind of how Christian history kind of feels like it plays out. Anyway, there's a town uh, called Leborero. Lebo, Leborero? Leborero? I don't know. Anyway, there's this, uh, there's this church. Uh, this is like towards the end of the Camino. There's this church there that's like from the 13th century. Very old church. One of the oldest churches uh, on the trail. And uh, it has these frescoes inside that depict the passion. But the soldiers that are persecuting Jesus are all sort of dressed up in like conquistador outfits, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's like these Spanish soldiers that are torturing and punishing Jesus. And it has this real feel of like, we're holding a mirror up to ourselves. It's, it sort of echoes like what it is that you're saying. Like, are we always the good guys? You know? So, and are you the good guy, Greg? You the pilgrim? I'm always the good on guy. On the road? Yep. Okay, go. <laughs> Check him. <laughs> I want to see the hand go in the bag, Greg. I want to see <laughs> an unexpurgated choice. What is going to happen? <laughs> that was one of the rare churches that was open on the trail. Usually churches are closed. Really? <laughs> That's what I found on the Camino. Yeah. 
So we're I'm, we're going back to the bag. Is that what I'm hearing? Going back to the bag. Yeah, but but Ricardo needs to see your hand. <laughs> I'm watching. The hand has reached in and has grabbed a B for bits. Yes. All right. We are going to see if you can guess what my item is. It is a television show. It was on network television, late 80s, early 90s. It was on Saturday nights. I'm going to give you the shows that were also on, and we're going to see if you can figure out what show it is. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Golden Girls. Mm-hmm. Empty Nest. Two two seven. So this is like the lineup. Yeah. And yeah. the big hour long drama Hunter. I already know what it is. What is it, Craig? It's Amen. It's Amen, Greg. It's Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of it. <laughs> Liz, this is this is your it's your it's your it's your youth it's your youth. Ricardo's also giving me a confused face. So the Jeffersons, right? Sherman Helmsley stars as Mr. Jefferson, and that show gets kind of canceled in in a way that isn't exactly the way we all they wanted it all to go down. They thought maybe they were coming back. So then they launched this new show, and it's called Amen. And so it stars Sherman Helmsley, and he plays Deacon Fry. Deacon Ernest Fry, and he's at this church in Philadelphia, which is actually where Sherman Helmsley is from. And it's an AME church there that they kind of use for all the exteriors. And so it became known as the Amen Church. Sherman Helmsley, he's a deacon. He works at the church, but he's also an attorney. So you kind of have his law practices kind of also a part of it. He lives with his daughter, Thelma, who is played by the incomparable Anna Maria Horsford. She's great. You see her face, you're like, oh, I know her because she pops up. It's like a 30 minute sitcom. Absolutely. (laughs) Laugh track, whole thing. And then Clifton Davis comes on in the pilot. He's the new young uh, minister who's been hired at the church. Right. And so Thelma, even though even though Anna Maria is actually 10 years younger than Sherman Helmsley in real life, is playing Sherman Helmsley's daughter. And so she is immediately kind of love struck. With Clifton Davis as the as the new pastor. Mm-hmm. And so their their kind of relationship runs through the show. They eventually do get married on the final episode of the show. They have a child, their first child. But <clears throat> what I loved about it was the church culture that you've kind of got going on. You've got what is the symbolage of the vestry. You've got like the two kind of aunties, the two sisters who are kind of big. In the running of the vestry, you've got Jester Harrison plays this older. He's called he's the senior citizen member. He's in the hip hop choir. He does all the things. He's just all over the place. It's just an amazing actor. They also got on um, not, you know, amazing black actors who guest starred on the show who have you know huge histories you know in the black community. So if you're looking through here, we've got. Um, um, James Avery, who went on to find great success in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air as mm-hmm. the father, right? Um, Jack Hay also must have been a total crossover episode because she's also on 227 right. at the same time, right? 
LaWanda Page, who played Aunt Esther on um, Samford and Son, right? Oh, right, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you've got um, uh, Whitman Mayo, who if you look him up, you'd be like, oh my gosh, I knew that. So, but, and, but then also other people like Halle Berry was on the show. Nell Carter was on the show from uh, oh. Give Me Break. Like uh, just so, so, so these, when NBC was really putting these shows out around Cosby show, different world, all these shows with predominantly black casts. And this was kind of one of them, but centered on church life. And so this kind of the church is a hub and a place of kind of coming together and of, of conflict and of kind of then the deacons kind of that bivocational deacon, right. That he's, he's working in the church and he, you know, doesn't always make the right choices in his life, but is trying to be kind of faithful and do what he's supposed to do, um, even though he sometimes doesn't. But that sort of fallibility and humor, but the ch- church is never, it doesn't go too far into the preachiness, but they also they also tackle tough issues, alcoholism, other things like that. You know, there's very special episodes where they're going for that. There's also an episode with MC Hammer coming on as a guest pastor to preach. I mean, it's like, there is, it was, it was, it was, it was a lot. And I kind of forgotten about the show and I was, I was Googling around trying to figure out what I wanted to talk about today. But I just remember you know, being my, my white gaze watching this show was also something that I kind of thought about that I, you know, in the South where I grew up, you know, Sunday is the most segregated day of the week, right? That, you know, I didn't really know there were black Episcopalians in, in Alabama when I grew up there. Um, they, you know, I didn't see kids at camp very often, you know, it was just, it was all very separated and segregated. And so to kind of have this opportunity to kind of see at least NBC's <laughs> interpretation of black church and yeah. what that, what that looked like was, was interesting to be able to do right. Or, you know, Ed, Ed Weinberger, who's the creator of the show and kind of what, what he thought, you know, and this is, you know, Ed Weinberger, you know, the only son of a Jewish butcher raised in Philadelphia. Right. So I found that I found it all to be an uplifting show overall as a sitcom centering on people in the church. It kind of sounds like an American Vicar of Dibley. Mm, yeah, there's there's those elements. Right. Because the show that I'm not going to talk about is Rev. Like, that's one of the shows that I really and we've talked about that show on this podcast before. But I think when you get into the host of characters that satellite around religious communities, they are interesting bunches. All of us nod because we know them. Right. And it's also a really joyous place because it brings together intergenerational stuff. It brings together different families. It intersects with need. And I think that they they did that well on the show. Yeah. Every person who works in a church could write a book yeah. if you could get away with it. The, and the thing is, you can't get away with it. But it's the it's like the most wonderful privilege of our vocations is that you're living in the middle of this drama mm. <laughs> just all the time. It's incredible. Yeah, the running joke for our podcast is that if we actually recorded the stuff that would be sort of the gossipy stuff of church, we would have like the number one podcast. Right. The first half hour of our podcast, you guys. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's interesting. You were talking about how you get this sense of a whole community, you know, all the, all the different stories and the dramas. And again, it's that thing like, why can't there be successfully delivered or except in rare circumstances, 
sitcoms or dramas or movies or whatever that really show a, a valid religious uh, community. You know, you've got ER, you've got hospital dramas and all the stuff that happens there. That's been done really well a lot of times. You know, you have that with all kinds of office places, but like churches, for some reason, it just seems, am I wrong? I mean, it's rare. Like you're talking, this is an exception that yep. proves the rule. Yeah, what, what what could that possibly look like? I agree with you, Ricardo. I think any place with any setting would kind of have that interesting collection of people and somebody doesn't have to get murdered every week, right? For it to be interesting. Right? Well, it's a declining <laughs> institution. Like to me, mm-hmm. um, Shakespeare in the, no, not Shakespeare, Mozart in the Jungle. Mm-hmm. And um, what was that show with Sandra Oh about the small college where she was the chair? Oh, the chair. Mm-hmm. Those were basically about the church. I mean, they weren't, but like they were about small liberal arts communities that are declining because people don't affiliate with organizations anymore. Like it would, yeah. it, it, both of them I found immense comfort in because they could have easily just been transferred to a church. But to Ricardo's question, why can't we do that with a church? I think there's a natural aversion in the culture. I do too. Yeah. To religion. And, you know, I mean, it's, it, it plays out in our numbers, obviously, in terms of attendance and kind of, I hate to say, relevance for the culture at large, except for, you know, the event, the, the sort of right wing making Supreme Court help them decide mm-hmm. people. But um, yeah, I think that's it. I think that's a big part. Of I think it. it's about integrity because like people don't go to the symphony that much anymore either. You know, I mean, and like, or like the ballet, like any, you know, Midwestern dance company is facing the same struggles, but you're more likely to watch that because you're not worried about the integrity of the dance company. But with the church, I think that there's so, has been so much hypocrisy that people aren't willing to even put in enough trust to engage with the show, like the premise of the show. But yeah, I mean, I think you get to kind of in amen, you see the village. Like this is the village of people in Philadelphia going to church. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I think I think we touched on this too, like in Liz's opening. Like there's a there's a space for like these church things. Like I'm sure that if you pull up whatever Christian channel, I don't know what Christian channels are called. So I'm sorry. But like I'm sure that there's a church show on there where like you know, the dad's the pastor because it's not going to be the mom. The dad's going to be the pastor. It's going to be a white family, you know, and they're going through like whatever it is that they're going through. And that's like the church show. And it's just like, because that space has been carved out by a specific audience, it's like, it's hard for it to live in other places where it can have more complex ideas. I think. Well, I mean, that was seventh heaven. Like that's the premise of seventh heaven. Okay. All right. Uh, So I guess I'm last. I we want to see the bag select. Yeah, you gotta see you draw it. We don't oh, trust I put the, the bag other. Anymore. I put the other chips back in the bag. He always does that. Mm-hmm. Because my chip was the last one. So, I mean, I can reach in the bag, but it's gonna. We'll be take sick. your word for it. Don't we'll pathetically keep looking at the bag. Just go. <laughs> Just go. Okay. Well, I hate that I went last. So, because mine is kind of a negative thing about church. Maybe I'll do like an extra one. Sorry, Betsy. I'll do an extra one at the end. That's more positive. 
We can end on a negative note. I'll do my main win first, which is a negative one. And then I'll throw in a little positive thing at the end. (laughs) Um, So uh, my pick for this topic is one of my favorite movies from last year, which is uh, called Benedetta. Now, you may be thinking, Benedetta, isn't that the lesbian nun movie? Yeah, it's the it's the lesbian nun movie. <laughs> um, but there's a little bit more to it than that. Uh, and so that's kind of why I picked it. Jesus Christ. This is a movie directed by Paul Verhoeven, pretty notorious name in cinema. I don't know. I think what I appreciated about it is that Verhoeven's still working through the stuff that he's always been working through in like all of his movies, which is how is our world affected by violence and erotica, right? And so he just kind of like picks at these things, you know, trying to solve this puzzle that I think is in his mind, but it seems like he never solves it. Which one um, is which one is Robocop? This violence. Sorry. Go, yeah, go, that was uh, a violence. Yeah, just check him. <laughs> Robocop check and Total Recall are probably him working out his violence. Basic Instinct and Benedetta is probably him working out sort of sex and erotica. So anyway, so Benedetta is uh, uh, set in the 17th century in Italy. It's a French film, though. And it's about a girl who is placed in a convent. Her name is Benedetta. Um, she's placed in a convent as a young child because she has visions of the Virgin Mary. Eventually, there's an novitiate that comes and joins her convent later after she is an adult. And uh, she ends up falling in love with the novitiate. And uh, she becomes the head of the convent and then becomes sort of uh, gets enmeshed in a conflict with the local cardinal. All of the eroticism. I'm trying to like downplay that because I think that that's, that's kind of what this movie has been pegged as. And that's really like circumstantial for actually what the movie is about. The movie is about power and control and how the institution of the church wields power and control. But it's also about true believers. There's this thing that happens where Benedetta has these visions of the Virgin or visions of Christ. And we as the audience aren't sure if they're legitimate visions or if she's playing this long con in order to gain power in the convent. It could be both, right? And the way that the movie presents it sort of presents it as this could be either she's not legitimate or either she's having real visions of these things. Mm. You know, what is it that we really value uh, in church? And what is it that we're really looking for? Do we value the story? Do we value the call? Do we value the things that we say that we believe in? Or are we just kind of giving voice to belief, but really what we're looking for is power and ego and control? That's a tough question because I've worked in churches where 
I really think it's the former, but I've also worked in churches where I really think it's the latter. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's hard for people to trust our institution, I think, because I think it's hard for people to understand where we're coming from sometimes. And if we're on the up and up or not, then mm. wow. kind of picks at that. And so that's why I would recommend it. And yes, you're going to see nudity and yes, you're going to see, and it's the eroticism. It's just, it's just how Paul Verhoeven shoots movies. I'm sorry. I mean, let's not boys will be boys with Paul Verhoeven. If you want a little bit of a deeper dive into Paul Verhoeven and kind of his history, I will recommend the podcast. You must remember this. Their current, their current season has been all about sex in the eighties in movies. And of course, Paul Verhoeven is a director of basic instinct later showgirls kind of all playing into those things as well. Mm-hmm. But anyway. That sounds great. I haven't seen it, so I don't feel like I can comment on it, but I appreciate your uh, reflection on the sort of lockdown that happens when institutions decline, mm-hmm. which I think we've seen all of, throughout the church and in our Episcopal church it is a great example that we managed to pull off a five-day general convention this year, but two years from now we're having a 12-day general convention. Like there's no, <laughs> like we will, the, the institution gets smaller, but we make sure that the structures get bigger. Well, we also convince ourselves of this myth that there's going to be a priest that's going to save it all. Yeah. Um, and that's something else that Benedetta gets at that I really like, which is like, you know, oh, uh, I, I see parishes do this all the time. Oh, we've got declining numbers, but don't worry. Our new rector is going to bring in, you know, X number of families. Well, I mean, maybe, probably not. I mean, you know, it's not a we're not Pied Pipers. We're just preaching the good news of Jesus. And either people want that or they don't want it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't I don't know what it is that some magic thing is going to happen when a new priest comes in. Maybe people will be curious, but I mean, you know, at the end of the day, if a new priest does bring in a bunch of people, is that about Jesus or is that about that person? It's such a difficult, weird little mix. I think it's hard to do it well. And I wonder if we, you know, we just don't have leaders. I mean, this this sort of runs counter to what you were saying. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not the priest's job to make the church numbers grow, but it's hard, I think, to find people who are up to the task of priesthood, maybe, with all the, the kind of the power it brings and responsibility. You have to be self-confident yet humble. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be um, engaged yet detached, you know. You have to be differentiated. Yeah, yeah. Which is like an objective aspect of spiritual maturity that not, and just human maturity that not everybody achieves. Yeah. And we don't test for it at all. Right. We yeah. don't evaluate it. We don't test it. We don't have any means to identify it. I feel like that's, that's being really generous. Like, I think there are actually bad actors, <laughs> like, yes. you know, that find their way in charge of parishes. And I think that like, you know, what this movie gets at and what I sometimes struggle with is like, who are the true believers and who are the people who are trying to con man to join their church, mm-hmm. right? Because I think that both exist, you know? And that's like, that's what makes me feel bad about the church sometimes. It's like, I want to believe that everybody's on the up and up. And yet I know that like, it's not always that way. 
Well, and sometimes those, you know, angels and demons fight in the same person. Like one of the movies I wanted to talk about, but didn't was the apostle, which is sort of an example of that with Robert Duvall. I don't know if anyone saw that. Like, here's a person who's really broken and fallen and also has this very sincere, devoted faith in the midst of that. And the story is about that tension and in a much more dramatic way than most people. But yeah, I think that there are, as you said, Greg, there are the wolves and there are the sheep and then there's like a hybrid sheep wolf. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a sheep wolf. Like a, I don't know what a, what a third animal would be like that would have both those characteristics. Well, uh, as, as my dear husband once said about a bishop uh, who will remain nameless, he's as wise as a dove and innocent as a serpent. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Which could be said about other folks. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Okay. So that's, that was my negative one. And I don't want to end on a negative note. So there is a show that I just watched recently. I'll do this really fast, but I'm sorry. There is a show I just <laughs> okay. watched recently. That's not about church. It's not about Christianity, but it is about religion. It's, um, it's a superhero show. Sorry. It's called Miss Marvel and it's on Disney plus. It is about a Muslim girl who becomes a superhero Kamala Khan. But what I appreciated about it was that it took the community like the mosque community really seriously. And it's not about glossing over like what mosque life is like. It's about like, here are the problems that we have. Here are the struggles that we have. Here are the wonderful celebrations that we have. Here are the tragedies that we face. Like all of these things are sort of part of the show. And it's just, it's just, it's just woven into the show and it's not like a big deal. It's just a part of life. And I would have never thought that I would recommend like um, some crazy superhero show, but Miss Marvel does this really well. And so I would recommend that if you are just sort of like, how does religion play a role in like a young teenager's life? Who's just trying to figure things out the, it's a great show for that. You know, I'm surprised none of you brought up the show, the book of Daniel. With mm-hmm. with oh, God. it was awful it was so I, bad i, I still so think hard. about that show a lot it, it, i had such high hopes i was able to get through the first episode but it was like the son is gay the daughter's on drugs the wife's having an affair he's got doubts the archdeacon is yelling at him i mean it was just like I don't even think it made a season. Was it? I don't know what I think it only. I think it was only three, three episodes. It was a whole season. But part of the reason is that people were offended that there was a personified Jesus. So it it wasn't that like it wasn't just that it was bad TV. It was that um, the religious right was offended by a depiction of Jesus. The book of Daniel, fun fact, is the reason why Episcopal Cafe was invented as a website. Is that right? It was a recap website for the show the book of daniel and then when it got canceled it just kept going as the episcopal wow it's the episcopal journal isn't it no? episcopaljournal.org episcopaljournal.org yeah. okay that's a very excellent segue <laughs> so thank you for listening to another episode of popping callers thank you greg thank you betsy thanks you ricardo um check out our picks let us know if you have picks that we missed that you think would be especially compelling depictions of Christianity and pop culture. You can email us at pop and colors podcast at gmail.com. 
um, and check out our website, poppycollarspodcast.com. And you can find us anywhere that you listen to a podcast. You can find us where you found us now. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It will help us. Finally, you can also find us on Episcopal Journal. If you didn't catch the previous uh, comment, there's been a massive rebranding from Episcopal Cafe to Episcopal Journal. We live there along with our podcast um, friends. Uh, We have lots of podcast friends. (laughs) Because we had two members of our podcast at general convention yeah i feel like it's safe to say that we're the official podcast of general of general convention (laughs) there are probably a lot of podcasters (laughs) probably everyone at general convention has their own podcast (laughs) we should have betsy we missed an opportunity we should have done like a live episode from general convention we could have except we weren't allowed to gather anywhere we could have done it outside (laughs) we could (laughs) have That's true. With just a crab cake and a glass of wine, we could have spilled all the tea. All the tea. (laughs) Thanks. Well, thanks for listening to Popping Callers. Make sure to check out Greg's episode about the Camino to hear all about his adventure. And keep those collars popped. Pop, pop. Pop, 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 pop. Pop, pop. Take me to church, I was